Welcome to the 15th podcast in our First Peter sermon series, Through the Fire. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley will be continuing our series with a sermon called, The End is Near. Last week, we looked at suffering and ceasing from sin. Uh, we talked about being armed with Jesus' thinking. That came right out of 1 Peter chapter 4, and I gave you some examples with that and what Jesus taught about directly, what he spoke about, uh, not just for ancient times, but for people today. Uh, we talked about uh, a number of ideas of Jesus' relationship with his Father and and how that clarifies how our relationships should look like with Jesus. And we talked about, real briefly, the proof of an abiding life in Christ, our relationship, our ongoing, growing uh, uh, connection with Jesus. Uh, is not the, the proof of that, that, that it exists, is not found in how many times we say no to sin, but how many times we say yes to Jesus. And I don't know if you, if you were here last week, you heard that. If you weren't here, if you didn't watch online, maybe you've never heard that before. Go back and look at it and listen to it if you haven't yet. Um, we quoted John Owen. We talked a, a little bit about some things that he said. But it's just so critical that if we truly want to abide in Jesus, we're doing more than just a legalistic or moralistic response to him, just trying to maintain or contain the sin that keeps creeping up in our lives as Christians. What we need far more, what is far more important, is finding and discovering what true life is, what Jesus offers to us moment by moment, living in that. And that contrast helps us to see how more wonderful he is and how more ridiculous sin looks. So that's where we're at last week. Where are we going in the last few weeks here uh, in this series of 1 Peter, and it would help if I turn this device on. There we go. I uh, can't blame anybody else. Today, we're looking at suffering and joyful service in the body of Christ. So same chapter, chapter 4, uh, Peter um, weaves together a message for individuals in the body, but he also has a message here for the body, and that is the church, the gathered people, those who are called out called into a new relationship, not just with Jesus, but with each other. And it's so critical that we understand that. In American evangelicalism, the focus of Christianity has been on the individual, my personal relationship with Jesus Christ, okay? That is elevated uh, culturally uh, in the way that we teach and the way that we think, right? So hope it works out for you, but I don't care. <laughs> Because what matters to me more is my relationship with Jesus. That's kind of what gets, I know that sounds harsh, but that's what, that's kind of where we've been at for a long time. And we can't do that. So this message is all the more important for those of us in America that are used to what matters most is me. And if you come along with, oh, that's great, if that works out. No. Uh, and, and that's another reason why I think 
the way Peter weaves his message together, brings together words of exhortation uh, for the individual as well as the body. They all come together just like the way that we should come together when it comes to new life in Jesus Christ. So, one more, uh, one more thing here is introduction. Throughout this whole series, I've been reminding us, when it, especially when it comes to exhortation, uh, imperatives. Peter uses a lot of imperatives. Do this. Wake up and do this, Christian, okay? He does that a lot. He does that again for us in this chapter. Uh, the way that we respond is extra necessary, important to keep in mind. It's not about just doing things and you'll live and you earn credits with God and that brings you into new life. No, we do these things, these imperatives, because we live. The, the, what we do is in response to the new life that we have in Jesus. Our text this morning uh, is gonna focus us on a, a little broader section of chapter four, so I'm gonna break it down as we go through it this morning. We'll start with just part of verse seven, and you see it on the screen. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Now, it sounds like, well, something like this. Maybe you've seen the cartoons or memes or whatever about the end is near, some crazy guy standing on the corner with a sign, right? You've seen that a lot. Uh, I, I ran across this one this past week with the, with the little angry kid and his sign. I thought, man, that's perfect. Isn't that perfect? 20-whatever, 2021, it's just around the corner, just the beginning of what? We don't, we don't know what's right around the corner. Uh, but anyway, that whole the end is near thing, that's been a part of, of jokes and cartoons for a long time. It even kind of sounds like when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, maybe the end is near is something that comes to mind when you hear that. But here's the deal. When Peter wrote these words almost 2,000 years ago, it turned out that the end wasn't near. In fact, Jesus didn't come in his time and any other time yet. So uh, either, I mean, what do we do with that? You know, was, was Peter delusional? Uh, was he being dramatic, trying to get people's attention? Uh, well, no. Uh, we have to understand what he's, or, or how he's talking. How is he, how is he uh, addressing believers when he says the end is at hand? And it's not just Peter who talks like this. Uh, James uses language like this. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament uses language like this. The writer to the Hebrews, we don't know who it is. Maybe it's Paul, maybe it's somebody else. He also uses language like this. They're not all delusional. Uh, they're not all picking a time and saying, it's gonna happen in my lifetime, the end is near kind of stuff. They're not talking like that. They're talking like this. They are looking at the history of God and his interaction with his creation differently. So I'm stressing this because we also need to look at those of you who are believers, followers of Christ, need to look at history in the same way. All right, are you with me so far? That's where Peter is drawing us uh, and focusing us this morning. He has the end of history in view when he says the end of all things is at hand. God created all that there is, the universe. He created man and woman. We sinned. We've always sinned. That leads us to the cross. 
and Jesus coming so that sin would not have the final word. We've already sung and worshiped and been dwelling on the thought of Jesus saving us. When Jesus died and then resurrected, he left the earth, he goes to the right hand of the Father, Scripture tells us, and that ushers in what we commonly refer to as the church age. In other words, the last phase of God's history plan. That's where we're at. So when Peter says the end is at hand, he's saying all the pieces necessary for God's plan throughout eternity are coming together. In fact, the pieces are there. All that God has ever planned to do has been has culminated with Jesus, and now the rest of the mission is Jesus and us leading to the eventual return of Jesus, not as Savior like he came the first time, which we'll celebrate in the incarnation and advent and so forth just around, just around the corner, but the next time he comes back is as judge and as king. And every eye will see him as that. Regardless of how you've looked at him, regardless of whether you've known him personally, Scripture is very clear on this. He comes back as judge and as king. And that will happen whenever it happens. Literally, whatever the clock says, we don't know. Jesus has already told us no one knows the time but the Father. It's not for us to know the time. So get over the time thing, okay? If you've got time charts somewhere and you think you figured it out, you haven't. No one has. In fact, everybody's tried to predict Jesus' turn has been absolutely, utterly wrong so far. The point isn't figuring out the time. Peter isn't leading us in that direction. But he is saying that that time is coming and everything else necessary has happened. That should draw us as a church. It should just give us a laser-sharp focus on what it is the last chapter of the story that Jesus has for his church. Are you with me so far? This is a big deal in that sense. We don't know how much time on the clock, but we do know that salvation has been accomplished, the church has been born, and the church has one thing to get right until Jesus returns. That is where we're at. So is the end at hand still? Yes. We read that with anticipation. We read that with excitement. We read it with joy, what Peter mentions. Uh, but we read it realizing that he has something for us to do, and we better be about the Father's business. Now, let's read the rest of those verses. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. That therefore, okay, at the end of that passage, takes us into this extension of the imperative that was given to us that we talked about last week. The last phase before Jesus comes back, we should be focusing on these things. Now, the first thing we talked about last week, I'm not going to repeat that again, but he says we should be praying for each other. So I mention that because it builds from there. We begin with praying for each other, 
And then, which I think, yes, there we go. The, uh, the next step is keep loving each other. And he shows hospitality, he mentions hospitality probably as his prime example. Uh, back to, you know, we've talked about uh, a couple times, the, uh, his audience, these believers in Galatia and these different provinces in the Roman Empire, they were probably literally exiles from Rome, different areas of the empire, and pushed out into Galatia a long ways away. So if you are without friends and family and job and even home, hospitality takes on a whole new level of significance, does it not? If you have the ability to host someone to help cover their needs in a, an immediate fashion, if you are exiled, that, that's, pretty, that's a pretty big deal. So I think there's a reason why he mentions hospitality. That's not the only way to love each other, but maybe that was the most important way at that time. So just think about that for a second. The way that we love each other right now 21st century, maybe hospitality still is high on the list. Maybe there's another way that is just as high or possibly higher in the way that you interact with others in the church. Just stick that in the back of your head somewhere, okay? Now, what does he say? Love, he says love covers what? He covers a multitude of sins. First question with that, whose sins? Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, if you're as, um, I don't know, as sinful as me, I'll just say that like that, okay? Uh, if you're somewhere on the level of me, then when you read that love covers a multitude of sins, I am tempted to think of your sins, right? Love covers a multitude of the things that you do, right? He doesn't say that. He just throws it out there. Love covers a multitude of the sins that we commit to and with each other. So the first check I gotta have in my own mind as I read that is, it's probably not just the things that you've done wrong. It probably includes, and not probably, it certainly includes the sins that I have committed and love still covers my sins. Now, uh, the, the context is what we looked at last week. Arm yourselves with the way Jesus thinks. So here's where we got to get real with each other when it comes to love. We can't have a, uh, air quotes, well, they know where my door is attitude when it comes to loving each other in the church. That's an, that's an actual quote, somebody I knew uh, back when I was in Iowa, when it came to problems within the church, uh, and if somebody doesn't like me, well, it's their fault, not mine, and they know where my door is. They can come and talk to me if they got a problem. Now, that, the way I say it sounds pretty bad. It should sound pretty bad, but it's kind of common in the church. If you got a problem with me, it's on you to come to me, right, to make things right. If your problem I'm not going to own your problem. You do what you need to do, Oprah style, whatever, but it's not me. Uh, you take care of your own stuff. Thank you very much. And when it comes to arming ourselves with the way Jesus thinks, we need to rethink that approach and that attitude. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21. Uh, 
Well, we'll just read it. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, Jesus gives the response here in verse 23. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He's speaking first century terms, going to worship at at the temple, bringing an offering to the altar, right? And for my whole life, you know, until fairly recently, I read that wrong. Because I read into, if you're not careful when you read the Bible, you read into it your own opinion and you read into it the way you think. You ever done that before? So you gotta slow down when you read the Bible. So what does he say? Uh, if you're offering your gift and there remember that your brother has something against you. Well, wait a second. Uh, this attitude of, well, my, they know where my door is, they can come to me, doesn't cut it. When, we, when it comes to arming yourselves of the way Jesus thinks. What if you come to worship? Maybe on a Sunday morning within the body, and there's something that maybe God tweaks in your head. Maybe the Holy Spirit, I, you know, I know he speaks, and I know he grabs our attention from time to time. I know he does with me. And maybe you glance at someone, or maybe you don't see them, they're not present, but that their name or their face comes to mind. And you think, well, maybe they do, you know, I don't know where that left off or that, that weird conversation, or I, I just, I'm unsettled, because I know there was something going on there, but I don't know exactly what it is, and I feel like in my heart that they've got an issue with me. I think what Jesus is saying is, it's our responsibility, people of the church, to stop and as soon as possible, Go to them and bring up what that issue is and make it right. Now, that's a whole lot more demanding, is it not, than the previous idea. But that's what it means to love, to go to that extent. And he even says, it's even in the language here. So he says earnestly, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. That's a good, that's a fairly good word. We don't use it a whole lot, uh, uh, describing love and what it, what it looks like. The word, the actual Greek word could be translated other ways. It could be translated constant, stretching, or extended. And all of those ideas can be wrapped up in the way that we translate. ESV chooses earnestly, but even add those other words, constant, extended, How often do we limit the way that we love? Oh, but they're exhausting. If you only knew, Jesus knows, right? He knows uh, the extra grace required people in the church around us. And if you think it's all everybody else, just imagine for a second what somebody else is thinking of you, okay? When it comes to extra grace required, right? Because what goes around comes around. So, extended grace, extended love to those of us who are at times very hard to love. We can't compromise on this one. 
The Spirit of God, when he puts it on your heart, I think it's, it's our responsibility to listen and respond and extend love to other people. Now, that's the first one. Keep serving each other. He mentions serving here in this passage. He mentions using your gifts for the benefit of others in the body. And then he gives examples of what that looks like. And look at, look at how he says this. He says, as good stewards of God's varied grace. I love how he says that. Because you remember I said earlier, we tend to think in American evangelicalism is you know, salvation is about me. And if you get worked in, great, you know, eventually. But uh, what he's saying is specifically when it comes to gifts, so many of the gift inventory things I've ever done in my life uh, as a Christian or as a pastor just focus in almost entirely on how I benefit from the use of, the, of this gift, how I should discover the gift so I can appreciate it and use it and whatever. The, the focus is twisted. I mean, the, the cart got thrown over at some point. I don't know why, but it, there's just... I mean, it's not all wrong, but the, the emphasis gets so personally focused, it's twisted. And Peter pushes back against that for all time when he says, good stewards of God's varied grace. The grace of God shown to you and to me is not a dead-end thing. It is grace shown for the benefit, yes, we, we benefit but it is an ongoing benefit that we can't and we should not be found in the place where we stop it or end it. The benefit should be extended. We are stewards of how God extends his grace through his giftedness, and it's all, it is all grace. Grace extended through us. You don't deserve the gifts you have. I don't deserve any gift I've ever enjoyed because of what Jesus has done. I've got to remember that as I consider whether or not I'm going to do anything in response to Jesus. So speak as one who speaks. In a long line of those who speak on behalf of God, remembering as you teach or as you speak, as you interact with others, uh, how important, how serious that is. Uh, folks, it is a burden and a joy to preach every week. It is fun to, to learn and discover and get excited about that, but it is also a burden that every time I get up in front of you, I'm the mouthpiece of the living God. And extra harsh judgment is reserved for those who don't take that seriously. And, and you better believe me, I pray a whole lot that I'm not gonna screw that up. And I get up early on Sunday morning to pray more that I don't screw that up, that God would be glorified and I don't throw anything in the way of that. It is a serious thing to be the mouthpiece of God. But that doesn't mean that you shy away from the calling or the gift as it has been given because the strength necessary to follow through on whatever gift is not based solely or even at all on me. So you don't stop. You don't stop with the thought, oh, I'm not good enough. Well, guess what? You're not good enough. Okay, we'll just go there. Whatever it is, whatever place it is in serving the church or being part of the functioning of the church, uh, I'm not capable, I'm not smart enough, I'm not loving enough. 
Right. You're not. You, you're not. Can we just, we can, can we settle on that by like foundational starting point? You're not. Okay, great. God is good enough. He is gracious enough. He has uh, ample amounts of gifts. He's God. He creates everything out of nothing. He can handle you and your problems, and he gives the strength necessary. So in that sense, yep, you're not good enough. Join the rest of us. Now get busy. Get involved. Find your gift. Discover how you can steward it. God gives the strength, so just jump in and get over yourself. If you're the problem of, of why you're not getting involved or discovering or using, then you got to remember God's grace. He is enough. He gives the strength. The functioning of the body is necessary for the mission. And we don't function unless we all get involved. Ask not what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church. I kind of slipped into it there in the, in the last part. Okay, he never said that. But every time I look at this passage, I think of what he said about our nation. Because the same is kind of true for the church. And listen, so many times, so many times in the American church, we compare churches and we analyze and we look at programs and the things that churches offer, right? Uh, and, and we go shopping uh, and, and all that jazz. And maybe, you know, I don't do that because I've always been on a staff somewhere. <laughs> so I'm the weirdo and I drag my family along with me in this weirdo thing. But you're all different. <laughs> so I know you've been at that point at some place in your life where you compare churches. So I, I'm not saying you just, you know, I don't know, stop being wise about how you consider if you've moved into town and where you go to church. I'm not saying that. But just keep in mind this. The church has never, ever existed just to make you happy. The programs or the pastors, the things that are going on, that is not what the church is about. Rather, consider the greater mission of God in these last days or, or years or whatever we have, there's something at hand here for us to get involved in. So look at that. Look at how you should be involved. Pray, give me an openness, Father, to what you have, the strength that you have alive in me to then empower me to be a part of your church's mission. And then all the other stuff kind of fades into the background when our focus is in the right place. How do we avoid the American dream church model? <laughs> uh, we gotta keep pushing back on it. It starts with praying, just like what, where this passage started. We pray, we pray for each other. We pray for the wisdom and how to move forward. Uh, what else do we do? We love each other, like what we're just talking about. We keep that in the forefront, earnestly, constantly, extending love to each other in the way that Jesus tells us to do. That's gotta be there. In the strength that he supplies, we respond in that. One final thing, starting at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The last point is keep enduring with each other. The struggle of the American church, at least one of the major dynamics of it, is we do not want to suffer. We want to uh, create ministry, fashion it in such a way that we are so attractive to other people. And if you're doing that, then you lose track of the sight of what Peter says, that there, not just if, there will be times that we will, as the church, suffer. Because that's the way of Jesus. We've already talked about that. He's reminding us that that is part of what's going on here. And no matter how pretty or nice we try to construct things, it's still coming. And I would add, if we focus on pretty and nice and attractive all the time, it will probably come all the more so. Why? Because mainly we're not looking for it. We'll be blindsided. What? It's, it gets tough to be a Christian or what? It gets tough to be the church in a land where this is supposed to be a Christian nation? How could this be happening? Doesn't matter whatever they say about the country, whatever country we were in. This is going to happen. So wake up. Be aware that it's on its way and maybe in some respects is already here. We cannot avoid all trials and testing and suffering and that's what Peter clearly teaches. Judgment is to begin at the household of God. The judgment, I mentioned Jesus coming back as judge and as king. The judgment begins not on all those bad people out there outside the church, in here. In other words, not, not judgment in the sense that we're found lacking in the sight of God. Jesus covers us. The judgment is taken care of on Jesus on the cross. So e eternal security is not in question here. What is in question is what does Jesus' return look like? And Peter is telling us that that return is beginning right here and right now. In this church age, he is purifying his bride. When he come, we spoke of the bridegroom of Christ. Uh, when we read in unison earlier, he is going to have a pure bride when he comes back with no compromise. And that ought to wake us up and scare us a bit. Because if our love is not on Jesus, if it's on anything else, like what he says to the church in Revelation, you've forgotten your first love. If we're loving anything else that compromises our first love, be warned. The New Testament, the book of Revelation is very clear on that. So we're not one sitting around trying to guess tribulation seven-year stuff. The tribulation is right now. It is right now. The testing is beginning right now. He is purifying us. 
Are we obedient in it? Are we aware of it? Are we responding to it? So that Proverbs quote, if the righteous is scarcely, scarcely saved, it's not in reference to how we've been saved in Jesus. It means saved with difficulty. Jesus paved the way of difficulty. Did he not with the cross? And then we follow in that, on that road of difficulty. So we are to expect trials. We are to rejoice through trials. Verse 13 reminds us of that. Why? Because testing feels good? No. I mean, we're not ridiculous. Uh, we don't enjoy pain. Uh, none of that is happening here. Uh, but we rejoice knowing where it ends, that it's for our good and it's for his glory. That is the, what we keep in mind. That's where we began this morning. And we've got to fight hard to keep God's view of history in mind. He is producing something glorious beyond our imagination, and we are a part of that. So stay on that agenda, on that page, he's telling us. We rejoice because we know where it's going. And finally, we trust in Christ during these trials. We keep the focus. We don't get distracted. It's not as we don't trust in our country. We don't trust in our political system. We don't trust in our military might. We don't trust in our government programs. We don't trust in our 401k. We don't trust in our educational system. We don't trust in our official response to pandemics. We don't trust in our preparedness plan. We don't trust in our av availability of state and city services. We don't trust in uh, how great our neighbors are where we live. We don't trust trust in our impressive array of church programs. We don't trust in our pastors, no matter how amazing they might be. Okay? We trust in Christ and Him alone. All the time, every time, we keep our eyes on Him, which brings us back to the end of verse 11. If you're following a notice, I skipped that extra points for you. Verse 11 the last part, all of these things that he is doing in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you see what he focuses us in on in that verse? To him belongs glory in everything God is working. I mentioned in the past, nothing is wasted with God. It is true, even in the difficult times, he doesn't waste a thing. Everything is for God, and it is to him, not to us, not to how great the building or the program or all those things I mentioned. So we don't live right now expecting more likes on our Christian wall online. Oh, we have more likes than the other church or this other person that I'm somehow better. That sounds so doofy and so juvenile, right? But we get sucked into that. There is a chemical response in our brain. It's a physical reality, right? A biological thing. I see likes. More people must like me, right? Or more, you know, more, more people like our church, right? It's not about the likes. It's about Jesus, now, one of uh, my favorites is uh, that I, I've read about uh, here and there, and he appears 
uh, different places, and he's a very quotable guy, Count or Bishop Zinzendorf, lived in the 1700s. Uh, at the time, so the Lutheran church has already been around. Martin Luther's been around for, what, a couple, or 150 years or whatever, by the time this guy comes onto the stage. And even then, in Germany, in the 1700s, uh, Lutheran, uh, Lutheranism, the church that Luther founded, uh, Protestantism, that's now becoming an old thing. So there is the need to constantly reform and to be more and more mindful of where is it we're going, who is it we love, are we straying from our first love, do we get caught up in power when it comes to the church. All these things are going on in Zinzendorf's time. And in fact, the more you read church history, the, the, it's just recycle, repeat. We, uh, the times are different, but we, 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 approach, we need to remember that we're coming up against things that have been there in the past with the church. Now, they didn't have Facebook, but they had other issues, right? So we got to remember the kind of things that people before us have learned. And this is one thing that you see on the screen that he learned. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. What a cheery way to end a service. It's not about the likes. Uh, it, at, at his time, uh, one, of, one of the issues was slavery in the 1700s in Europe uh, and how the Dutch were a part of the slave trade at the time. He spoke out against that. He paid a price for that in his life and in his ministry. Uh, so there were issues then. We've got issues now. And uh, so much of what our issues, where they tend to fall, is our popularity and our attractiveness. Uh, do people desire us? Do people desire our church? Well, what are they looking at? All the schemes and the mechanisms and the metrics that we use to measure success. Well, guess what? You can be a really big church and still be really unhealthy. You can be really small and prideful. You can have, you, we all have issues <laughs> to remember that the gospel is being preached and being brought to people through us, if we are obedient to what Christ is doing, that is all that we need. There will come a day that we die and we rot and we're forgotten. But Jesus wasn't. And if we can leave this history behind us of all these people that did know Christ, that we're introduced to Christ, that remember relationships and conversations and, and even coming to a point where, yes, I acknowledge I need Jesus. If these things happen through us, then we can die and be forgotten and give glory to God through that because we don't matter. It's not about us. It's about what Jesus is doing through us. That's what Zinzendorf reminds us of. That's what I think we need to keep in front and forward with us as a church. And then we can more clearly and more honestly say, to God be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, your word points us to this direction of judgment is coming. Uh, we've got to be mindful of what it is that you're doing and respond to it. So make us, Lord, first of all, all the more receptive to your work, even when it doesn't feel good, especially when it is difficult. Bring our eyes up to see you again and to seek you in those times. 
and what will be the outcome, Lord? Your, your, your word directs us. If, if judgment comes to the house of God first, what about those who aren't in the house? Keep us mindful that there are people dying without you. Give us a heart that yearns to be a part of your gospel mission. Yep, someday I'm gonna rot in the hole in the ground, and so be it. But if you can use my life to reach others, to come to know you, then Jesus, I want that. And make your church once again here in America, here in Dakota County, filled with that kind of desire, anxious and ready to achieve that kind of goal. Use us, Father, pandemic or not, to bring other people to the throne of grace. Work a new thing in us and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're continuing our series in 1 Peter. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including Genesis, Crossroads, Ruth, Faithworks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.com dot org.